Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter tells us, always, always be prepared to make a defense for the Christian faith. So I suppose what we should do, instead of the regular sermon today, is have you each come up here one by one, actually two by two, since Peter mentions Noah's Ark in 1 Peter 3, and just drill you, just drill you with questions, and make you make a defense in front of the entire Christian congregation, just like many of you probably did for your own confirmation. And many of you would protest. You don't look very happy about it, to say the least. And you would say, I wasn't prepared. Well, Peter does say, always, always be prepared. But don't worry, we won't do it. Mostly because it would make us go over the divinely designated hour of the Protestant service. And besides that, it's not only the congregation in which you stand in front of to make a defense of the Christian faith every week. Every week you stand in front of the world and they are begging you to make a defense. Why do you believe in what you believe in? Why do you have hope? And the reason they ask often is because they want to accuse you of things, but often it's because they are miserable and they want the same hope in Jesus which you do. So always be prepared to make a defense. So it's in that spirit then that we will discuss three, three defenses for you to consider, to take to heart, and then hopefully to actually use. Because who knows, the Holy Spirit might just actually use you to make a defense for the Christian faith, for the gospel. And somebody might hear that gospel that you speak to them, and they might just actually believe. Now the three defenses, they are called, first the chaotic defense, and it is as fun as it sounds. Second is the suffering defense. It's not as melancholy as it sounds. It's just realistic about how the world really is. And then third, and most importantly, if you don't get anything else out of this, the third one's the most important. So we'll save it for last, and that is the baptismal defense. So first, though, the chaotic defense. Now Peter starts off our text today. He says this. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I can't help but read this question sarcastically. <laughs> I think Peter's actually saying this tongue-in-cheek. Because on the surface, on the surface he seems to be saying this. If you actually want to do good things in the world, who, who really wants to hurt you? Like if you want to help the quadriplegic across the street, who's going to go after you for that? If you're going to hold the door open for a lady, who's going to get mad at you for that? If you're going to build a well in an underprivileged community that doesn't have access to water, I mean, who's really going to go after you for that? Well, my friends, the answer is everybody. <laughs> if you help a quadriplegic across the street, you're an ableist, meaning you look down upon disabled people. Why do they have to get across the street in the first way? Can't they do it themselves? What are you saying about the disabled community? If you open the door for a lady, you're a misogynist. You are saying that women can't open doors for themselves. I don't know if you knew that. By the way, happy Mother's Day. If that one's offensive, just wait for the next one. And then thirdly, if, if you 
build a well in an underprivileged community, you are racist somehow. So we'll look at the question again. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Oh, I don't know. Have you heard of Satan? He loves attacking good things. That is his M.O. And he enlists the entire world to attack the good things that God has ordained. He does it in the craziest of ways. I will now ask a series of offensive questions. But if you are offended, you need to ask yourself, why? And I promise I'm doing this to make a point, not, not just to be prickly. I don't try to only do that sometimes. So here are the questions. Where did COVID originate from? Do we actually want the war in Ukraine to end? Can we find anybody under the age of 78 to run for president? And lastly, best for last, what is a woman? Now the reason I ask these questions is just to illustrate how godless we have become. We have ripped God out from the foundation of our society and we built this house on a sinkhole of godlessness. And everybody is angry about it. The news networks, Fox, CNN, they're all yelling. They're saying, hey, somebody needs to take care of the light bulb. And they're right. Okay, the light bulb does need to get replaced. But they don't realize the reason the light bulb was out in the first place is because the roof has fallen in. And so here's the chaotic defense. It's really simple. It is either Christ or it is chaos. It's a binary choice. That's the defense. It's really simple. It's always been that way, by the way. It's always been Christ and chaos. But I don't think it's ever been so obvious to everyone. Even the reasonable unbeliever is starting to notice that something is amiss. Especially when we send our girls off to public schools and then they come home and they're teenagers and the entire world is celebrating the fact that they want to chop their breasts off and they celebrate it. So this is the defense. It's really simple. It is Christ or it is chaos. And the Christian then says to the entire world, this is the only reasonable thing out there. By the way, you're invited. Come on this ark. <laughs> because there is not a flood coming, but it's a fire of judgment. But God has given us this ark and there's more than enough room. So come to the ark. Come to Jesus Christ. Eat and drink without price. He can handle it. He can handle your burdens, your sorrows, and your sins. He wants to handle it. Christ and only Christ offers forgiveness. Jesus Christ is our foundation. All other ground is sinking sand. Second defense, then, this is the suffering defense. Now, Peter throws out the word suffering all throughout chapter 3. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. I think this is the one we have to engage with the most. Because whenever you talk to people and they give their objections to Christianity, it usually gets phrased in a question like this. They say, how could a loving good God allow suffering and evil. 
Now it could be just a philosophical conundrum for the person asking that, or it could be an intensely personal issue. They've suffered a lot and so they really want to know. The good news for us is we can use this question, actually flip the tables around, and use it to defend the Christian faith, and actually, in a way, prove God's existence. So people will say things like this, I can't be a Christian because of all of the pointless suffering in this world. And the key word there is pointless. Just because you can't see the point doesn't mean that there's not one. You ever look for a cricket that keeps you up at night? You ever find it? Just because you can't see it, does it mean it's not there? No, you know it's there. When you are going through something, you don't have the whole picture. You can't see what's actually happening. You lack perspective. You can't actually see that something good could come out of this. Take Joseph in the book of Genesis, for example. Good guy, really good guy. Except his brothers hate him. So they throw him in a well, fake his death, sell him into slavery. Would seem like pointless suffering. And then Joseph is in a house, Potiphar's house. He's the superstar servant. Except he only gets punished for that because Potiphar's wife has the hots for him. And he says no. So he gets thrown in jail. More what you would call pointless suffering, I guess. And then once Joseph is in jail, well, guess what? He's a superstar again, interpreting dreams. Now, unfortunately for the baker, Joseph's interpretation of his dream is right, because then he dies. But for the cupbearer, it's a good thing, because then the cupbearer is restored to the position of cupbearer at Pharaoh's side. Cupbearer promises Joseph, I'm going to remember you. I like you, Joseph. I'm going to tell Pharaoh about you. Which, of course, means he doesn't. He forgets. Now, Joseph, as he's sitting in prison there, would ask himself, what's the point? What's the point of all of this suffering? I don't think he would have seen the point. But when you back up and you have the entire picture of the story, you can see exactly what God was doing. He was using all of the suffering to lead Joseph to become the prince of Egypt, second in command of the entire nation. And what does Joseph do? He saves his brothers from a famine. And not only his brothers, Joseph saves the entire world. So when you have the old picture, you can start to see, yeah, a little bit of good can come out of some suffering. If we see that, how much more do we miss? We don't see the entire picture. God sees it all, and he has promised you that he works all things for the good of those who love him. Now, suffering and evil can actually help prove God's existence. The atheist is dead set that this world is unjust. Well, where in the world did he get that sense of justice? <laughs> if evolution is right, which it's not, but if it was, then we should just be happy that we suffer and die because we are making way for something bigger, something better. That's evolution. It's called natural selection. We should be happy about it. Except we're not. We are deeply unhappy about all of this suffering and all of this evil. The fact that we know that there is an evil necessarily means that there has to be a good. And where did that sense come from? From the unchanging, holy God. Now, practically, Peter is saying this. He says, all of you are going to suffer. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, unbeliever, good or evil. He says, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, 
than for doing evil. Good people, bad people, they suffer. The difference is, unbelievers, bad people, they suffer in this life, and then they suffer for all eternity. It's a twofold punishment. Christians only suffer half of that. And we can be comforted even in this life, knowing the gospel, knowing, yes, I will suffer now, weeping, though, may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Third and lastly, the baptismal defense. Peter says this pretty plainly. This is a verse to commit to memory, especially if you want to argue with your Baptist friends. I don't know if you really want to. I'm not really here today to bash the Baptists a whole lot. I do that enough on my own free time. This is a defense against the devil, though. Peter says, baptism now saves you. Period. Baptism saves you. You need this when you fight against the devil because your faith is fickle. The devil's going to come at you. He attacks you on a daily basis. And he throws your sins in your face. And he says, you're not a Christian. <laughs> Can you imagine how Peter felt? Peter's the one writing this. He denies Jesus three times. This is a golden opportunity to provide a defense of the Christian faith. And he doesn't do it three times. You and I... I've had way more than three times to make a defense for the Christian faith, and yet we don't do it. We have our pet sins that we return to. Proverbs in the book of James compares it to a dog returning to its vomit, where we deny Christ. My friends, when all else fails, whether it be your fault or not, rely on your baptism. The devil will go after your conscience because he knows it's fickle. He will bring up things from decades ago to attack you. He'll say, you're a real scoundrel. You know that? Look at all these dirty things you've done. You're no Christian. And when he says that, don't tell him about your faith. It's only as small as a mustard seed. Tell him about your baptism. When the devil throws your sins in your face, throw your baptism back in his. You can say, I know I'm a Christian, not because I'm great, but because Jesus had made me one in these waters. And if you would like to, you can quote Luther. He actually said this. He says, I often chase the devil away, and it is often with a fart that I chase him away. When the devil tempts me with silly sins, I tell him, yeah, well, guess what? I broke wind yesterday. Did you write that one down? It's one reason why I love being a Lutheran. <laughs> Baptism is also your defense to the world. It's your witness to the world. Whenever any, anybody ever asks you why you are a Christian, just remember the creed. It's really easy. This is the most important thing to remember. Why are you a Christian? I'm a Christian because Jesus Christ died for me. He paid the price for my sins, and not only my sins, but your sins too, and not only yours, but the sins of the entire world. And he did not stay dead. No, but he came back from the dead. Check the record. The tomb was empty. And in baptism, I have a clean conscience to stand before the living God. All of that is mine in baptism. Yes, I may suffer in this life, but it is a whole lot better to suffer with Jesus on the cross than it is to suffer all alone. I will die, that is true. But Jesus did not stay dead, but he came back from the dead. And so I too will be resurrected. All of this God has promised me in baptism. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.